Good morning, everybody. Oh, that sounded good. Merry Christmas, in case I forget later on. I want to make a couple remarks. Oh, I'm Paul. For those of you that are visitors today, I'm Paul. I'm one of the elders here, and I got the opportunity to preach today. If you're a visitor, uh, come back next week. John Spatafore is preaching, if I remember right, or Matt Meter. I forget which one. They're both way better than me. <laughs> so, you know, just don't, don't be discouraged. Don't give up. Stay with it. Uh, I want to make two comments before we, we get into God's word this morning. The first one is I want to thank the praise team. I, I sometimes get nervous when I preach. And uh, after the collection of, of hymns this morning, uh, I'm sorry, Christmas carols in this case, uh, you know, I just feel like I, I've walked into heaven. And then I came up here and saw you all. Um, but there's still like a little bit of a lingering effect. So I thank them for that. And then uh, secondly, after seeing that story, who in the world can preach after a message like that? I should just shut it and we all go home early, you know? All right, now we get serious. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for the opportunity that we have to be together with your people on the day before we celebrate the birth of your son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for the work he accomplished for us. Thank you for your word that gives us the, the, the complete message uh, of everything that, that we need to know to live the lives that you have called us to live. Father, as we get into your word, I pray that, if, that, that you would help us all to hear what you have to say and that you would keep me out of the way. Uh, if I mess anything up, I pray that you would you know, fix it and um, I pray that all of us, as a result of having looked at your word today, would live lives that uh, more closely model what you have called us to live in Jesus' name, amen. If, uh, if I was an advertiser and you asked me about Christmas, I think advertisers have taglines associated with a product. And uh, I, I think the tagline that is probably associated with Christmas is peace on earth, goodwill towards men. It just seems to make sense to me. The, the season as a whole, People seem to be friendlier, kinder, more gentle. Common decency is more common, unless of course you're in traffic looking for a parking spot or you're at like a mega sale, in which case, well, all bets are off. Yet the event we celebrate is at Christmas, the birth of Christ, was necessitated by an ages old conflict between two kingdoms. We want to look at that conflict today and hopefully get a, a better picture of the totality of Christmas. You know, in the beginning, there was only one kingdom. If we go back to the book of Genesis, the first three chapters, we're going to look mostly at chapters two and three, and actually we're not going to look at them at all. Uh, we're, I'm just going to tell you what they say, okay? You can trust me, or better yet, open your Bible, and you'll see that what I'm saying is in there. 
If we look at this, this early kingdom that God created, and we look at the characteristics that it had, uh, we see that the, the, the people who were in that kingdom, all their needs were met. You know, the Lord said, every tree of the garden is given to you for you to eat. It's all good. They could eat. They had a perfect climate. Everything they needed was provided. They had meaningful work. You know, God told them to subdue and rule creation and to fill the earth. They were in a peaceful, secure social environment. They didn't bring, they were freshly created. They didn't bring any baggage with them. They weren't around people who had baggage. Their social environment was excellent. There was no sin. Their emotional needs were completely met as they enjoyed daily intimate fellowship with God and with the perfect partner that God had created for them. They were tutored and trained by the living God to function as the king and queen of the kingdom that he had established. They lived in a world characterized by righteousness and love, although they had no understanding of that because they had never experienced anything else. Now, I'm going to use the pronoun we through the next part because the fact that we have all chosen at one point or another to not obey the authority that is over us, whether it was when we were children as a parent or whatever, indicates that we would have made the same decision that Adam and Eve made so many years ago in the garden. So in that paradise, we were not con content to be gods. Whoa. You know, until just now, that's a very bad sentence, bad grammar. We were not content to be God's possession. Don't want there to be any confusion there. We wanted to be like God. We were not content to rule under his tutelage. We wanted to rule our way. We did not accept his definition of good and right. We did what seemed good and right to us. We disbelieved a God who loved and cared for us and instead chose to believe his enemy who saw us as nothing more than a way to strike back at a God that he hated. And thus, a second, a second kingdom, a kingdom where the evil one rules, was born. So what was life like in the kingdom of the evil one? 1 John 5.19 tells us that we know that we are of God, speaking of us as believers, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The fact that Satan is the ruler of this world is not in dispute. The description of worship in the evil kingdom, 
you look at Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 through 13, we find that child sacrifice, divination, necromancy, mediums, charmers, or one who's an inquiring of the dead were all common in their worship. Nancy and I uh, and, and our kids had the opportunity to work in Haiti for 17 years. Nothing can describe the fear that one person has outside of Christ of having a curse put on them. We went, uh, I, I ran the maintenance shop at the hospital and uh, we showed up for work one morning and there was a dead rat hanging in the doorway of the shop. It's just hanging there. Now if we had found a dead rat in the shop, that would have been a non-event because the shop was full of rats and we did everything we could to kill him. We put out poison and traps and everything else. But this rat didn't hang himself by his tail in the doorway. And so this was a special event. And so uh, one, of, one of my foremen, a guy named Daniel, uh, was the first one there. And you know he cut the thing down, dropped it in a bag, and took it out back and burned it, which was atypical. Because usually we just buried dead rats. And uh, I asked him why he did that, and he said, oh, he says, that's, uh, it's hard to translate. He says, that's big magic. That's powerful magic. He said, somebody wants to put a curse on us. He said, if that had happened to me before I was a Christian, I would be terrified. He said, but, but you know, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. That is part and parcel of life in the evil kingdom. Motivations of the evil kingdom. First John 2.16 tells us that uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are what dominate. They are what rule. They are what drives us. Not the love, not the acceptance, not respect for others, but lust for stuff, for power and for possession. Conduct of citizens in the evil kingdom concerning Micah 7.3. This is a great verse. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. He's basically saying when it comes to doing evil, the people of Israel are ambidextrous. They can do evil as well with the left hand as they can with the right hand. The prince asks also the judge for a bribe a great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. How much abuse of power have we seen in the news recently? Part and parcel with the conduct in the evil kingdom. Mark 7:21. for from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and adulteries. Galatians 5, 19 and 20 gives us a list of the attributes, the actions of the flesh, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. Many of us probably have contact with people who live in that world on a day-to-day -day basis. 
uh, while we were in Haiti, while we were in Haiti, uh, things are different there. I mean, that's an understatement, but um, religion is an open topic of discussion. Here, it's, it's, I, I get the sense that it's regarded as a very personal matter and, you know, you have to build like a relationship with people before you can really talk to them about religion. But in Haiti, you could be standing next to somebody and turn to them and say, so are you a Christian? And, and they'll say, you know, I don't want to talk about this, which is, that's okay. Or, uh, yes, I'm a Christian. Or, well, no, I'm, I'm a voodooist. Or, you know, some, some other answer. Well, with, with young Haitian men, the most typical answer was, oh, Christians don't have any fun. You know, the world outside of Christianity is a better world. And so I used to ask them a question. I used to say, well, who would you want for a neighbor? Who do you want to have live next door to you? Do you want to have uh, and, and it's, it's interesting, in, in Haiti, they, or in, in Creole, there's actually two expressions for Christian. There's Christian and true Christian, and they're, they're actual words, okay? And so when you say a true Christian, that, that means somebody who doesn't just go to church, but uh, somebody that goes to church and on a daily basis uh, practices the values and, and the, the behaviors that are taught in the Word of God. And so, uh, you know, who do you want to have next door to you? And do you want to have somebody who's a true Christian? Or do you want to have somebody who's a committed voodooist? You know, what would you choose? With one exception, with one exception, every one of them said, oh, I want a true Christian next door. Because a true Christian isn't going to steal my stuff. A true Christian isn't going to try to sleep with my woman. A true Christian isn't going to put a curse on me if, if they get mad at me. And they would go down the list with one exception. Family service can't talk about that one. Colossians 2.8 tells us, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. The, the baseline of the evil kingdom is that it is empty and deceitful. As those young men so said, oh, it's more fun to not be a Christian. But they admitted that the end result is not anything that somebody wants to live next door to. So, we ask ourselves, where would we prefer to live? What would we choose? If the, if the choice was up to us, would we choose to live in the kingdom of God or would we choose to live in the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness, or the kingdom of light? Well, there's good news and there's bad news with this one. The bad news is that we are born into the evil kingdom. That's pretty clear in, in Ecclesiastes uh, 7.20, it says, Indeed, there's not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and never sins. Isaiah 64.6, For all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is our condition natively when we are born, dead. Members of part of the evil kingdom. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is, is a little bit more uh, comprehensive. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Not a pretty picture. Not a pretty picture at all. And now for the good news. Despite the fact that we are in the kingdom of rebellion, desiring to be our own God, desiring to live for our own benefit and making our own rules, God still loves us. If we go on to the next part of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, but... In this case, the greatest word I could ever see. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In fact, God loved us so much that he sent his son to redeem us. Rebellion, sin, has a price, and the price must be paid. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. John 3.16 and 17, we see that one of the most familiar verses in Scripture, written on the eyelids of athletes and on signs at major sporting events, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Before Jesus could die for us and deliver us out of the kingdom of evil, he had to live. And in order to live, he had to be born. Christmas celebrates his birth the beginning of God, the earthly beginning of God's solution to our rebellion. For a short while, in, in, in the view of eternity, for us it seems like a long time because it's our whole life and that's the framework that we work with, we, we, we see how we see time. But for a short while, these two kingdoms coexist and Jesus, through his birth, life, death, and resurrection, provides a way for us to enter God's kingdom through faith in Christ's death as a sufficient payment for our disobedience. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once we have taken that step of faith, we're welcomed into God's family. We become citizens of his kingdom and look forward to eventually re returning to the peace, security, stability, and joy and fellowship with him as he originally intended. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even unto those who believed on his name. Romans 8.15, we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, Abba, Father. Abba was a, uh, the, the translation of, of Abba would be like Daddy. I, those of us that are parents or those of us that have observed parents with children know that, that daddy is a very tender and affectionate term. That is the spirit that we receive from God, that he is our daddy. Galatians 4 verses 5 and 6 reinforces that because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, it's true, while we live in this physical body, we experience the pull of our past. As Paul said in uh, Romans chapter 7, um, you know, sometimes we don't do the things that we want to do, and we do the things that we don't want to do. But in general, through faith, we have the opportunity of participating in part in the kingdom that is coming. We have peace with God and the security that comes from a certainty, from the certainty that a sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God watches over every detail of our life. Through fellowship with the Lord in prayer, we can participate in what he does in the world around us. The Lord has charged us to model his values and character, pursue his goals, and be his hands and feet in this world. His spirit empowers us to live the life that we're called to live. And his word describes that life for us. It's our lamp so we know how to walk in the darkness of this present kingdom. And we also have the promise of his return when he will come and take us to be with him. The comfort of our current reality is life, or the current reality of our life as a child of God is only exceeded by the promise of our future with him. Revelation verses, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, talks about how God will, in the future, dwell with us again. Our fellowship will be with him directly. He will dry every tear. There will be no sorrow. There will be no pain. There will be only joy. The original kingdom that we turned our backs on will be restored through the work of Jesus Christ whose birth we celebrate tomorrow. So there you have it, the life-changing truth, starting with Christmas and ending with the Lord's new heaven and earth. A more complete story of what Christmas is all about. Now, we're going to make a turn here, guys, and, and you've you got to be a little bit mentally agile to keep up with me. I'm trusting you to get this right, okay? There's a lesser truth associated with Christmas. It concerns the reality or lack of reality 
about a major cultural icon associated with this holiday. In our family, we chose the root of acknowledging that this figure is fictional. There's nothing necessarily right or wrong about any of this. It's simply a choice. We had a nickname for this cultural icon. We called him the fat fraud. No, it wasn't me. This is no big deal. It was just a piece of Brown family culture. Uh, Paul Brown, those of you don't know. Until we returned to the US on home assignment. One of our children, who will remain nameless, was in kindergarten that year. As the holidays approached, she was horrified to find that her new friends were deceived on this matter. They were her friends, she cared about them, and since she knew the truth, she felt compelled to enlighten them. So she did. The truth, as truth often does, had an immediate and dramatic impact on those who heard it. We got a call from the teacher explaining the impact. For some reason, the teacher thought it better that those in darkness be left in darkness. A number of parents of her friends agreed with us, or agreed with the teacher. I have lost track of the time, of the number of times when I, knowing the truth, have seen someone in darkness and left the truth that I knew untold. Perhaps because of the expected impact of the truth, perhaps because I failed to value those in darkness enough to share the truth, perhaps I was too absorbed in the things of this world and my concerns, my interests, my goals, my desires, whatever the reason, it was only a reason. It was not an excuse because, frankly, folks, there are no excuses. We know the truth. We are called to share the truth lovingly and patiently, modeling it as we proclaim it. God in his love has prepared a way back into his kingdom. Mankind is not trapped in the kingdom of death, evil, and darkness. Through Christ, they can enter the kingdom of light and life. They need to know, and we need to tell them. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for creating a way back for us. Thank you for blessing those of us who have placed our faith in you as our savior with the opportunity to hear that news. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have failed to share that news with those that we know to be in darkness. Convict us, Lord. Empower us, strengthen us to share the glorious news that cost your son his life so that others can join us in your kingdom and know peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We uh, have a distinct privilege this